good evening, everyone. Uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25. Uh, we'll be reading in just a few minutes from, or just a moment from verse 23 uh, through the end of the chapter. And before we read that, there are two things we should know uh, before we head into this chapter. The first of them uh, is that a calyx is... Uh, one of the little pet, uh, the leaves on a flower that goes under the buds uh, on the flower, uh, otherwise known as a sepal, sort of caresses the flower that's bursting up. It'll be an important word because it comes up a bunch of times, and I know I had to look it up, so I assume maybe there's one or two others who do. The other thing about this chapter that's perhaps even more important is the fact that right, this may not seem like uh, a bathroom mirror passage for us, right? Not one that we reflect on all the time, not one that's always before our eyes, but that actually was true, uh, or most likely, for a particular set of people in redemptive history. That is, uh, these are the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle and its furniture. Right, so as we look at these verses, uh, they may not seem to us like lively uh, passages full of uh, energizing and redemptive uh, truth, but they really are, right? And, and even beyond that, uh, there was a group probably of craftsmen, right? These men that we read about in Exodus and Leviticus who were inspired, who were given the Holy Spirit so that they might carry out these commands and in doing so, proclaim God's truth through the architecture and the furniture of the tabernacle. And so it's very important for us to remember that uh, while these may not be things that we read very often, this is the very inspired word of God, and it's important for us to read and to see. I'll be reading from the ESV this evening uh, because I forgot to switch over my notes after the Winter Conference. So (laughs) if you have ESV, we'll be reading right along together. This is Exodus 25, verses 23 through 40. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a handbreadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense, and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings, and you shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself, there should be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. 
And if you'll turn with me to the final two verses of chapter 27 as well. We read about the oil for the lamp. This is uh, chapter 27, verses 20 and 21. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. In the tent of meeting, outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from morning, uh, to, sorry, from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. And that's where we'll end the reading of God's word. Thanks be to him for this marvelous gift. Uh, well, as I've previously mentioned, uh, when I was young, I was in the Boy Scouts, uh, and it was a common occurrence for us to head off to summer camp and get to enjoy uh, earning some merit badges that we might otherwise not be able to in other periods of, uh, of the year or uh, with certain people that did them in a different and interesting way. And uh, I actually, on multiple occasions, took the course for the astronomy merit badge, not because I failed it the first time, but I just found it so enjoyable uh, to go out with this group uh, to, to spend an evening out under the stars. There was a field trip, uh, if you will, a hike away from camp uh, each year on, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday night of the week, for us to just go up and look up in the sky and see uh, the beauty of God's creation, even though it wasn't uh, called that in that setting. Uh, I, of course, enjoyed the stories, and there's, there's a lot uh, to, go, to go together with sort of being out and away and, and just looking up. But one of the crucial parts, the reasons that we hiked a, a mile away from our camp, which was already in the mountains in California, uh, was because when you look up at night, most of the time you wind up seeing not everything that's there. There's something there that blocks our vision. And that was, that was the first time that I was ever introduced to the concept of light pollution. Right? This idea that when you look up in the sky, other lights are competing with the light that's up in the sky. And uh, obviously the stars burn so much brighter than our light bulbs here or even the cities that are around us. But something about our atmosphere kind of reflects this light and makes it difficult for us to see what the Lord has put in the heavens. Uh, it's said that uh, nearly 80% of the population of the earth uh, cannot look up into the sky and see uh, an unadulterated view of the sky because of light pollution. And so even up in the mountains in California, we had to hike a mile away to get away from our small camp with a couple of buildings and a couple of light bulbs just to be able to see. Right? And, and as difficult as it may be for us to get away from physical light pollution, it's impossible for us to get away from spiritual light pollution. Right? We cannot live a day of our lives without the world telling us there is something better, there is something for you to be distracted with, there is something clouding your vision of who God is and his work in our lives. And spiritual light pollution may take on a bunch of different uh, forms, right? It might be that uh, as we're uh, we're polluted with the lights coming from the screens on our televisions as we pursue sports or as we want to be caught up on every last bit of news that's coming out of Washington or uh, across the world. It may be that uh, right, we're, we're pursuing uh, the shininess of gold, right? trying to fill up our, our bank accounts and, and make sure that we are safe and we're satisfied and uh, we can buy happiness. Uh, as a new report says, you're, you're more able to do that than you were before <laughs> this week. Uh, it might be that we're trying to pursue being a star student instead of uh, looking at the light that God gives us, right? Looking at the lights on our phone, 
trying to be or to watch uh, influencers or even worse, uh, pursuing what the internet has for us, the, the absolute wealth of nothing that it bears uh, on our lives. But the Bible is very clear, right, that there is one light and one light only. There's only one way to see and there's only one way to go through this life undistracted, and that is that you must have fellowship with God by his light, Jesus Christ, in order to see and serve him. You must have fellowship with God by his light, Jesus Christ, to see and to serve him. So children, if you're drawing a picture this evening, you can draw a picture of our our sanctuary with all the lights off. Uh, I know daylight savings just happened, but let's imagine it's very dark in here uh, and that we we have just a couple of candles. Uh, What are people doing in the sanctuary? What do they do even though there's almost no light? And how does that inspire us to serve the Lord? Our first point uh, in this evening's passage is that God's light reveals his holiness. God's light reveals his holiness. And this may sound familiar to the last time that I was in the pulpit uh, a little over two months ago uh, when we looked at Genesis 1. We talked about the the lights in the sky, uh, the way that they reflect God's holiness. They reflect his character uh, by being... uh, by being enduring lights, by being conquering lights, by being discerning lights, all of these uh, are attributes of God himself that he gave for us to see and to know who he is. Uh, And this really should sound familiar, right? When God gives us a symbol uh, and a symbol of who he is, that is unchanging. And, And this light, this lamp that's placed in the tabernacle is intended uh, to give us an image of who God is as the Israelites would come to worship. If you look on your Uh, outline, on the back of your outline, uh, I put two images there uh, at the bottom. Uh, The first I'd I'd like us to look at is uh, considering the very passage and context of Genesis 1 that we looked at before. It's this uh, image of concentric circles there at the bottom, right? And all of these circles give us an an outline of what it's like for God's presence in the universe. Uh, As we begin, uh, we see uh, at the very bottom, this, this outer world and outer space, which uh, in the tabernacle complex has its, has its corresponding location in the outer courts of the tabernacle. The garden is the holy place, and Eden is this holy of holies. Uh, there is, as we mentioned last time, this idea that the whole cosmos is God's eternal temple, the place where his dwelling is among his people. Adam and Eve did not have to go any new place in order to experience the fullness of the presence of God because they were there in the garden, in Eden, experiencing intimate face-to-face dwelling and fellowship with God. And once the fall occurs, the next place that we see anything remotely like that is only in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. God's presence is restricted to this one place. But there's another similarity here uh, that we we should see, uh, if you'll remember last time as well. I mentioned that the sun, the moon, and the stars in Genesis 1 are all referred to as light bearers. Not lights in and of themselves, but light bearers in the Hebrew. And it's a very rare word. It only occurs about 10 times in the Old Testament. But this is the next location that shows up. This lampstand is referred to as a light bearer. It is not carrying forth its own light. It's just taking the light that it's been given and bringing that 
into this new location. And so it, it's very important, right, that, that as we look at these seven lights on this lampstand, uh, one commentator even says, even the seven lights on the lampstand in the temple symbolize the seven lights of the visible sky, the sun, the moon, and the five planets that were visible to the naked eye at the time. That God is really trying to reveal to his people everything that I had at the dawn of creation is now here with you in this place. It's why uh, the lampstand is shaped like a tree, right? A tree with almond blossoms, supposed to call to mind the tree of life. It's why the temple is filled with all of this garden imagery and with the cherubim standing guard before the Ark of the Covenant. We're supposed to have our minds transported back to the garden and remember what a beautiful thing it was that once all of creation was God's very tabernacle. Uh, it's like God is saying, uh, Eden is now here. And so we should zoom in on this element, this lampstand, this light bearer, this sort of tree of life placed here for the people to see, for the priests to see, I should say. And its purpose is that there is a constant light that's intended to communicate what God's presence with his people is like. And there are a couple of quick characteristics we should note. The first is that God's presence, or God himself, uh, just like this lampstand, is a pure, unified whole. Look with me at verses 36 through 38 of chapter 25. Their galaxies and their branches shall be made of one piece with it, and the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. There is no taint to this gold that is to be used. It is pure gold, and we read that word several times, uh, like this characteristics of the lampstand, that it must be without blemish, just like everything else in the tabernacle. It is a reflection of God and of who he is that this, this gold that makes it up is pure. It is also a unified whole. It says many times it shall be made of one piece with it, one piece with it, one piece with it. Uh, this is a, a unique structure in the tabernacle. This, this thing is 75 pounds of pure gold. We often think of a little menorah, right, going on a, 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 a table or a piano or something, and it is no little candelabra to bring around. This thing is probably five or six feet tall. Uh, it is a massive, massive piece of work. And as a craftsman handling this, you would imagine that putting this together in small pieces would be so much easier, but God does not allow that. He says it will be a single hammered piece of pure gold. And I think it's important for us to note that as with an Israelite looking at this lampstand, there is no way that somebody could have come in later and soldered on an extra leaf. Right? Nobody would have, have sort of added a Frankenstein arm to this lampstand. It's not even a piece of cast gold. Right? It's not that you can construct some mold and then pour the gold into it, pull the mold off and see the gold uh, fashion itself according to the way that the mold was built. No, it is supposed to be hammered out according to the pattern seen on the mountain, right? according to God's heavenly plan for redemption. So there is no altering this without it being very clear to everyone that it has been altered. This is a pure, unified whole that is supposed to represent our God who is himself pure unadulterated, and absolutely unified in all that he does. You cannot look at God and say, oh, see, that's the God of the Old Testament, and here we have the New Testament. He's been altered, right? He's been changed. Somebody added on that other thing later. No, 
God's plan to his people was to reveal himself in such a way that it is evident if somebody tries to tamper with the character of God because he is pure and he will not be tampered with. We can't even conform him to our own opinion. It is not a cast piece. We don't get to change around the mold and pour it. No, you hammer it out according to the word that the Lord shows. The second thing we should note, we saw in verse 37, uh, the lamp shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. It is an exclusive light. There is no other light-producing element in the tabernacle. These seven pure lamps, burning pure olive oil, is the only light given in this tabernacle. Uh, some commentators speculate it is about five inches of goatskin leather that make up the walls of this tabernacle. There is no way light from the outside world is getting inside here. And so there's only one way for you to make your way around the tabernacle, and that's from this light. You cannot bring some other light in. You cannot change the source of light. God gave one light and said there shall be no other. And it's a reminder that as though we're walking outside the tabernacle, we are walking as the redeemed of God, and we need this light. We cannot make up another, and we don't get to alter or change the way that the light of God is constructed, even in our own day. Right? We need his light, and only his light. And the world is fighting to add other lights. But we have to remember that the light of God is exclusive. It does not allow uh, secular psychology or evolutionary biology to dictate truth. But the light of God is the dictate of truth. Even in the midst of questions, of difficulties, temptations, even in joy, our life has to adhere to the pattern shown to us on the mountain. And we cannot live apart from that. We can trust it because it's pure and trustworthy, and it is our light to see in all of life. That brings us to the second thing that we see uh, through this lampstand, that we must see by God's light. We have to see by God's light. The other picture that I put on your outline uh, is a cross-section, if you will, of the tabernacle. Uh, and it's, uh, it may be a little bit grainy, uh, and my apologies for that. But uh, you can see up in the, the front, the bottom left, uh, here is this six-foot-tall uh, lampstand out of pure gold. And as we look throughout here, I, I already mentioned there is no other light source in this tabernacle. Right? And we can see that it's lighting the way throughout this whole room. It's the only thing uh, that allows the people to move around. God's light is meant to shine here in the tabernacle. God has provided a light so that people can see. It's a new point in redemptive history, though. Whereas in Eden, in that creation account of light, God's light, his light bearers, the sun, the moon, and the stars, all shone over the whole earth. God's light is now, as I said, restricted to this one place, to this sanctuary, to this holy place. Uh, it's, it's sort of funneled into one location, and it now only shines among God's people where God's presence is. It's hidden from the rest of the world as a whole, but it's not hidden from God's people. As they come to the tabernacle and as they come to worship, God's presence is walled off from everybody else in the world. Uh, not just by these multiple thick curtains, but no light from anywhere else was coming into God's presence. The only light that exists in God's presence is the light that comes from God himself. Right? And we shouldn't try 
to find our own way. We shouldn't be coming in with strange fire, if you will. Right? The priests are not walking into the tabernacle with flashlights or with sensors or with a little torch just to make sure that a light is there. They can trust when they go into the tabernacle that God has a light that he set it aside, that he set aside people for that purpose. We even read that the sons of Aaron shall maintain this evening and morning because God has said, this will be here. It is my promise to you that my light and my presence are with you and among you. It's a reminder to us that that we don't get to make our way. We don't get to to decide how it is that we approach God. We don't uh, even on our way out of the tabernacle, grab a stick and light it on fire just to make sure that it's there next time, right? Uh, it's, it's really a, a reflection of the regulative principle of worship uh, that as we come to God, he has maintained and given a way. And it is not ours to light the way before us, but to trust that the Lord has a fire burning, that his holy presence is there, and that we are not paving a new way. God has provided And the message is for us just as much as for the Israelites. We aren't to light our way to God's presence by any other means. He's given us the light of his word and the light of his presence. And he supplies it. He lights the way with it. He keeps it burning eternally. Uh, Psalm 119, 105 uh, on your outline says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Uh, We don't have a tabernacle to walk into. We don't have a giant lampstand to keep our eyes fixed upon, but we do have God's word always with us that is a light for our path and a lamp to our feet so that we know where to go. Perhaps one of the most touching things about this lampstand, though, is actually found there in verse 37. Uh, It says that the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. And if you look again at that diagram and see what is directly in front of the lampstand. It's the table that we read about at the very beginning of the passage. It's known as the table of the bread of the presidents, presents, sorry, or the table of showbread. There is a, a symbol where daily 12 fresh loaves of bread were placed out on this table. 12 loaves because there were 12 tribes to Israel. And every morning, There's a sign that that God is always with and renewing his people. And that is set out daily on this table directly across from God's light and his presence. And it's a reminder to us, to, to the new Israel, that God's presence is there and it's shining on us. It's a constant reminder. It is hidden away in the tabernacle here, away from the rest of the world, but it's where God is and it's where God puts his people right in front of him. It shows his presence, it lights his way, and it puts us right there in his light to see and to walk and to be renewed daily by the warmth of his love and his presence. And so even if it feels like a dark place, The tabernacle was not some bright and shining place. There's one light with seven little burning lights. And it it may feel as you enter the tabernacle, it may have felt, I should say, that there's very little light to see by. But God knew what he needed to give. And that light is there as a constant companion to the people of God. If you're lonely, if you're struggling with 
school or with work or with relationships with coworkers, relationships with the people in the church. God has put his light there always before you, even if it feels like darkness. And you can get up and find light and rest and refreshment and be refueled to continue in his service because that bread doesn't do anything. The bread sits there on the table and God is the one refreshing it. Well, thirdly, uh, we are to serve God by ministering by his light. We must minister by God's light. So not only do God's people use this light to see and to get around to navigate the tabernacle, but they're navigating the tabernacle in order to minister in it. And indeed, their only light is this light of God. So no matter what their duty is, every priest that enters the tabernacle is called to do something and is seeing by this light only. So if you're the priest assigned to go in and replace the bread every single day, you have one source of light. If you're going in to burn incense, if you're going in to add oil to the lamp, even if you're the high priest going in once a year for the atonement, there's only one light. (coughs) This lampstand here is the light by which to minister in the house of God. And we too are priests. I know I've referenced this verse before, but I think it's an important verse for us to understand the paradigm of New Testament believers. This is 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Every single one of us is a priest in God's kingdom. There's no exception. It doesn't say you're a kingdom with a bunch of priests. It doesn't say uh, that there are a handful of select royal priests and all the rest of you are subjects. It says you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people. So there are no exceptions. There is not one person who is called to be gods that isn't called to a priesthood out of darkness and into light. from outside of God's presence into the light so we can serve, so we can proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out. And none of us ministers without this light. Everybody serves. And everybody serves by this light. And there are those we we know who are trying to minister by the false lights, by this light pollution that the world is putting forth. Some of it is more obvious than others, right? Some of it, we know about the prosperity gospel preachers on television who are proclaiming health and wealth. Uh, We know the people who are saying that uh, if you just name it and claim it, right? All of these things are, are very obviously light pollution to us. We understand that and we can see that and we can call it out for what it is. But there are much subtler ways to undermine God's light. And we need to be introspective as well about how this looks, right? We might, we might be following secular psychology and saying that, uh, yes, uh, there is depression and it's caused by this, 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 and this. We may be looking to biology and saying, well, of course you're having a difficult time in X, Y, and Z because you're not uh, right, going through these motions. Uh, it might be 
uh, that we see the church as a social club or even as a social gospel to go out into the world and, and resolve these issues and make friends and, and find connections and give strength to people. Uh, it may be that we're trying to give out books and have book studies and book clubs and tell people what a wonderful hope there is. But if we're not telling them that the hope is in Christ and it's found in the word, if we're not trying to change society according to a social gospel that is only the gospel, then we're just trying to replace God's light. In high school, I was in uh, the technical theater crowd. I was uh, involved, as you may have guessed, with the lights and the sound and things. <laughs> and, and when the time came to change the lighting on the stage, right, we would go up and put, put gels in. We'd put filters in in front of the lights. And it's an easy way to just change the color of the lights that's coming out. You put a little blue filter over it, and now all of a sudden you have blue light. Right? And we may think that when we go about proclaiming the social gospel, that we're just putting a filter over God's truth so that other people can more easily accept it or understand it. But if we're not bringing the Bible to bear, if we're not bringing Christ to bear on the situation, if we're not bringing the sacrifice of Christ to the situation, it's not a filter. We're just blocking out the light. We're shuttering it off and we're trying to replace it with our own light. And that, brothers and sisters, is light pollution. It's nothing but distracting people from the very light of God. We often, or I did, I don't know how many RP people did, but growing up with saying, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And I never really understood the verse, hide it under a bushel, no. First off, if I put it under a basket, I feel like the bushel is going to catch on fire. It just never made any sense to me. But, but the fact is, right, that's a way of trying to cover up this light. And we may shout, no, but do we do it? Do we say, God forbid, as he does in his word, that I try to substitute my own light source? Or do we just press on, trying to to make it conform or justify our own light? No, we have to minister by God's light and God's light only. And we have to minister. We are called as these priests. We and those around us can only be right with God by the light of God. This light, though, is no longer hidden in the tabernacle. We've been talking about it the whole time, enclosed. But that's not the case for us as believers today. It is once again the light of the world. Fellowship with God is again possible for anyone in the world. And that's why it's so crucial that we shepherd souls to know Jesus. And that is our last point this evening, that you must find fellowship with God by his light, Jesus Christ. What was prefigured in that Old Testament lampstand was made real in the person of Jesus Christ, who, when he came into Jerusalem, And he began a ministry right in the heart, in the city of the temple itself, proclaimed what we read in John 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's not the light of the tabernacle anymore. It's not hidden away in one geographic location on earth. Jesus gives us the language of Genesis 1, that the light is shining on the whole of creation again. That he 
has demolished the tabernacle. He's not just the light, not just the light of the Father, the light of the tabernacle, but the light of the whole world. The fullness of the light of God found in creation is here once again so that we would see that he alone would do and be everything the tabernacle was ever meant to be and more. He literally and figuratively tore down the curtain because he opened up the tabernacle. It once again fills all of creation. The whole world, the whole universe is God's cosmic temple again with Christ as the light. And in fact, if we fast forward to Revelation chapter 21, uh, this is on your outline as well, verses 22 through 24, John sees a, a vision of heaven, of, of this city, this new Jerusalem coming down. And, and John marvels, he says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. We, we are the nations. And the, the kings of earth are, are slowly, slowly catching on to what God proclaims in Psalm 2, which is, you will bend the knee to my royal king, the one I have anointed. And it's by the light of the lamb that the nations walk. And the kings of the earth bring their glory into it. That is, their worship is given to God Almighty because this light is shining on the whole of the earth. So his presence in the great temple of the universe is our light to see. It is our light to minister. But even more importantly, it's the light amongst God's people, Jesus Christ himself. And just like the bread sat on the table in the presence of God by the lampstand, we too have fellowship with God through Jesus Christ his son, his light, as he transforms and renews us. As he said later in John chapter 12, 35 and 36, so Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. The last part is crucial. You don't just occasionally walk into the light. But you, you walk in the light and you believe in the light and you become sons of light. We who were once sons of darkness have been conquered and brought into the kingdom of light so that we can serve him and proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Paul explains this likewise in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. For God who said... Let light shine out of darkness, looking back to Genesis 1 again, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, this light shines in our hearts so that it can transform and renew us. And we see, again, the fruit of this born in Revelation. In chapter 1, we see this lamp stand again. Revelation 1, 12, and 13 says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And later on, John explains, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand 
and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This lampstand that sat in the tabernacle is here as the church. Our churches itself are little lampstands patterned after the pattern that was shown on the mountain, after the pattern that is Jesus Christ himself. He transforms us to become light. Christ takes us out of the darkness, out of, from being walkers in the darkness, to being lampstands. And this is how we have fellowship with him. We become beacons of Christ and his service in this dark, dark world. He makes us new, and he makes us like him. But you cannot have the light to see, the light to minister, the light to be a lampstand if you do not have fellowship with God. So if you feel as though there is darkness around us, you're right, there is. But as Philip said earlier, light always overcomes the darkness. If it's the true light. If it is the light of God. And if you don't want to know living on in darkness, if you don't want to pass into darkness, there is an answer. It's this lampstand. But the real lampstand, Jesus Christ, the pure, unified light of service and life for anyone who is God's people, anyone who will come to him. So in all of life, remember that you must have fellowship with God by his light, Jesus Christ, in order to see and serve him. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you. We thank you that uh, though we live in a dark world and though we see darkness around us, that uh, the tabernacle is not the only expression of your presence anymore, but we live in a world that is where you are. You are with us each and every day. You light our path by your word. And even more, you bring us and transform us into sons of light and into little lampstands according to the person and the work and the beauty of the hope that we have in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, please help us to remember it is our job to look to your light that we may see and to minister by this light so that others too may know your loving grace and your salvation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let us turn now to Psalm 18d. Psalm 18d. We read in uh, the second stanza here in verses 27 and 28. It says, For you a suffering people save, but bring the proud eyes from their height. O Lord my God, you light my lamp. He turns my darkness into light. We were indeed people of darkness. We were suffering people. We were the proud eyes on high, and yet the Lord has lit our lamps, redeemed us, and called us his own. Let's stand and sing Psalm 18d.